This is 100 Years of Cox. You are listening to a podcast by Frances Thompson. I'm telling the story of 10 siblings from the Machel Cox family through the letters they wrote to each other. They were born in England between 1864 and 1884. Seven of them lived in England and three lived abroad in the colonies. Today I have picked two letters written by women from the Machel Cox family. London in the 1820s by Matilda Machel, grandmother of the ten siblings. Her letter was written in May 1827, describing her life and the people she met. And the bridesmaid's letter, which describes Charlie and Minnie's wedding, the parents of the ten siblings. This letter was written on Wednesday 23rd of October 1867 by Minnie's cousin Evelyn. Matilda's letter from the 1820s. Matilda Machel was the mother of Minnie Cox, who was in turn the mother of the ten siblings. Matilda was born in the year 1800 in Beverley, Yorkshire. She was clearly a much-loved youngest child and only daughter, and she appears to have been doted upon by her wealthy parents. She was a very eligible young woman, She was considered to be the belle of East Riding, if not the whole of Yorkshire. She had a perfect seat on horseback, was a talented singer and pianist. There were many interested suitors, all of whom she had rejected. She finally married at the age of 27. She actually sounds a bit much, and she was perhaps a bit of a spoilt little rich girl, but she did write some interesting letters full of rich detail. I have 10 letters which Matilda wrote in the 1820s before she married. All of them were written to her beloved brother, Christopher. Most of the letters are written from London. During the season, each year, wealthy young women lived in London with a chaperone and they went to parties and balls and were presented at court, whilst generally on the lookout for a husband. Have you seen a televised version of a Jane Austen novel? Well, that was the Regency period, and Matilda was writing in the 1820s, just after the setting of the Jane Austen novels. Matilda's letters show her to be witty and entertaining. With a keen, observant eye, she relates stories of her life, the people she meets, the carriage rides in Hyde Park, and the people she observes there. Cuttingly, she also writes about people she doesn't like. I'm going to read one of her letters today. It was written on black-edged morning notepaper, indicating that Matilda was grieving for a family member who had died, although I'm not sure which family member it was. I think the letter was written in May 1827, based on the events described in the letter, but she didn't include the year when she wrote her letter. I don't have Matilda's original letters, Instead, it is the transcriptions made by Dr. Cox and Vera in 1909 that have survived. The original letters would have been on very small sheets of notepaper. Once the page had been filled with handwriting, the page was then turned and then written on again, overlaying the first handwriting. 
Sometimes the page was rotated a third time, this time on a diagonal angle, with yet more news written onto the same page. So I'm actually grateful that Dr Cox and Vera managed to read Matilda's letters and transcribed them for the other nine siblings to read, as I would no doubt have struggled. Again, I am very grateful to the Bodleian Library in Oxford, where all these documents are housed. If Dr Cox had not transcribed Matilda's letters, if Vera had not helped decipher the tricky bits, and then if Sir Christopher and his brother David Machel Cox had not kept all the many boxes of Machel Cox letters safe, and subsequently donated them to the Bodleian Library in the 1980s, I would not be reading them now. Matilda's letter from London. On morning paper, probably after her brother Richard's death, probably 1827. Thursday, May. Margaret and I commenced the long perambulation in the carriage, and she became so sick that she would not go into the park. So I went with the baby and the maid. And whilst I was driving there, who should I see but Mr Trollope, who pulled up his horse and looked very hard at me. But when he saw the child, he seemed to think he must have been mistaken, and he rode on. I was quite grieved, as I have not seen him since. We then went and dined at Mr Wilson's, where we had only Mr Noel and Captain Hotham. Poor dear Mr Noel was so dreadfully ill. He had not been out of bed except once since I had seen him on Monday, and he only got up to come down to dinner. He was wretchedly out of spirits, and he said he was one of the most miserable of all miserable beings. Mrs Maester was so grieved that he was so ill, as James Wilson fancied it was finery and that he was giving himself airs, and so he was very cross with him. I sang a good deal in the evening. Adelaide was quite the finishing of Mr Noel's spirits, and Mrs Henry, knowing nothing about it, could not imagine what was preying on him, and thinks him in a consumption. He complains of the heartlessness of London, and says all the world is going wrong with him. I cannot help feeling sorry for him, as he is so ill, and yet he is so interesting. Friday. Mr and Mrs Maester called for me at ten o'clock in their carriage, and we started for a complete sightseeing tour. We went to the Guild Hall. We drove through the temple, and then I met William Curtis, whom I had a long talk with. I also saw John Soane, who was looking such an object that I should have been ashamed of speaking to him, except in the court of the temple. We then went to a most astonishing place, the bank, such a confusion and trouble that I was quite stupefied. Then we went to the Tower of London and saw all of its wonders. The armour has all been newly arranged by Dr Merrick and is most beautifully arranged. I think I never saw anything more striking than the room of small armoury. It is really magnificent, and the arms are so clean it is astonishing. Of course we saw the jewels and the new crown, but there is no use in talking about it. I cannot describe it properly, as it is splendid beyond description. From there we went to look at the new docks, which are being built close to the tower. And then where do you think we went? 
Now that it is over, I think I have performed a great feat. We went to the bottom of the tunnel. Mrs. Maester and I did not quite like the idea, but our curiosity conquered us and down we went. When we got to the bottom, it was all wet and miserable, lighted by a few candles. I asked the man whether we were safe if the water burst in again. Bless your heart safe. No, ma'am. When the water came in three weeks ago, it filled the tunnel up to the top in less than three minutes. Well, my dear Christopher, you may imagine we were not three minutes in mounting the stairs again. We turned round and ran up as fast as our legs could carry us, and most thankful I felt when I was safe and breathless at the top. Now it is over, I think we were very adventurous, don't you? We got home at six, and then Mr Thompson and I went to dine at Mr and Mrs Barnes. Poor Margaret was too sick to be able to go. So poor I had to encounter a host of dull, disagreeable strangers. I sat between Mr Barnes and Mr Corbett, with whom I had a great deal of talk, but I was very glad when the carriage came. We went afterwards to see the Millmans, and I am very sorry to find they leave town for the country on Monday. Mrs Millman once called and said she would be happy to take me to see some sights, but she was perchance merely being polite, as she is not called again. I have received long letters from Mr and Mrs Reed, in which they tell me that the gallant Captain Hoare is to be at the races at Beverley, and I also received a very saucy note from George Thompson with the letters, in which he confirmed this piece of intelligence. I do not know whether Mr Noel will be well enough to go with us tonight to hear Sontag in La Donna del Piège, but I hope so. Margaret is to have a dinner on Tuesday. Now, goodbye. I send this to Beverly, I hope, by Caroline Hall. Give my kindest love to my mother and John and Sally and write soon and tell me all the news. Love to Robert and his wife. And now believe me, dear Christopher, ever your most affectionate sister, Matilda Machel. If you don't say I am very good to write this long scrawl, I will quarrel with you, but I do not expect you will be able to read it. Did I ask you if you had the bill from Mr Hall, the hairdresser? I know I paid it, yet he has sent mine and Margaret's bill in again. Write soon and tell me how dear Neddy is. I hope he has not deserted me yet. I have not got a hat yet to please me, nor yet a gown. I do not know what to do. Black and lavender are so common in the street that I do not know what to get. Notes on Matilda's letter. If you have never heard of the Rotherhithe Tunnel under the River Thames, have a look online, as it is all very interesting. It joins up Wapping in the east end of London on the northern bank with Rotherhithe on the south of the river. The famous Brunel family of engineers designed and constructed this foot tunnel, but it was a dangerous and expensive project which took many years. Water leaked in from the River Thames, which in the 19th century was essentially an open sewer, emitting methane gas, which in turn was ignited by the oil lamps used by the miners. 
Brunel's innovative wooden tunnelling shield enabled 36 miners to dig within separate compartments. The contraption was then slowly moved forwards and bricklayers then lined the tunnel walls behind. This elaborate shield became the prototype on which all future tunnelling devices were based. But it took years of tunnelling and it was incredibly expensive. Wealthy sightseers, such as Matilda and her chaperone, Mrs Maester, paid money to descend the stairs and view the spectacle. The flood that I believe Matilda is describing occurred in May 1827. The tunnel suddenly filled with water and the miners ran for their lives. A diving bell was then lowered from a boat into the river, enabling the damage to be inspected. Thousands of bags of clay were dropped onto the riverbed from a boat to seal the leaks. When the tunnel was drained, a banquet was held inside it. No one died during this flood. The laborious digging continued, but then there was another flood in January 1828. Miners were drowned, the money ran out, and the tunnel was bricked up and abandoned for seven years. The tunnel was eventually finished in 1843. Queen Victoria officially opened it, and 50,000 people walked through on the first day, paying a penny each. Remember, this was the first ever tunnel under a river anywhere in the world, and it was regarded as one of the wonders of the world. The finished tunnel was a daily thoroughfare for the working class people, but the middle classes considered it a tourist destination for them to visit. The wealthy upper classes, like Matilda, were essentially slumming it by leaving their expensive carriages to descend underground. They had to overcome their fear of the unknown, but were curious to experience what was no doubt a damp and smelly tunnel. It became a shopping arcade with fairground attractions. Visitors could buy souvenirs, perhaps the equivalent of our fridge magnets. Maybe they said, I've walked under the River Thames. But the enterprise was losing money and the tunnel became known as a place where a prostitute could be obtained. For a penny, London's homeless could sleep in the tunnel at night, and it became known as the Hades Hotel. In 1865, the London Underground took over the tunnel, and tube trains still run through it today. You might have travelled through the oldest ever tunnel under a river without being aware of it. It is easy to imagine Matilda's excitement at descending underground, a wealthy young lady slumming it, along with her chaperone, and her shock at being told she was not safe at all. It would have been a long climb back up the stairs, running in big skirts, petticoats, a tight corset and a bonnet. Matilda also mentions in this letter going to hear Sontag perform in an opera, which was quite likely at the Covent Garden Opera House. Henrietta Sontag was German. She was the soprano soloist in the first ever performance of Beethoven's Symphony No. 9 in 1824. She was aged only 18 years old. She was a much sought-after soloist and became very famous. She performed at the top European opera houses in Berlin, Paris and London. Yet by 1829 she was married and no longer performing. The park that Matilda is talking about is Hyde Park in London. It was very fashionable to ride in the park in your carriage displaying your wealth. 
Matilda describes who she sees, what they are wearing, and what she thinks of them. Matilda's letter was written in 1827. We have now jumped a generation, and this next letter is about Matilda's daughter, Minnie. Minnie was born in 1840, and she is getting married in 1867 to Charlie, who was later the Reverend Dr John Charles Cox, father of the ten siblings who wrote the budget. This letter is written by Evelyn Atkinson. She was a cousin of Minnie's, and she was one of the bridesmaids at the wedding of Charlie and Minnie Cox. The wedding took place in Carshalton, which in the 1800s was a village on the outskirts of London. It is now part of the outer suburbs of London. Reverend Cator was the local Church of England priest. Charlie's father was Reverend Edward Cox, who was another Church of England priest. It looks like Reverend Edward Cox took the service and married his son and new daughter-in-law. Charlie and Minnie are my second great-grandparents. Wednesday, October 23rd, 1867, Carshalton, Surrey. My dear Uncle Christopher, I find it wants exactly an hour and a half to dinner time, so I don't think I can employ it better than in writing you a long letter according to my promise of long ago and telling you all about the proceedings of today. To begin with then, first thing in the morning, the bridesmaids and the gentlemen and two or three more guests had breakfast downstairs in common morning costume. Minnie breakfasted in her dressing gown in Agnes's bedroom, and Mrs Fred did the same with Aunt Mary Anne. You would have laughed if you could have seen the scrimmage and work I had to get both bedrooms supplied with enough breakfast. The cries for cold turkey from both landings were clamorous, and I'm sorry to be obliged to tell you that the bride was perfectly ravenous. Most unromantic, wasn't it? When they at last had eaten enough, I went and dressed, and then I went to Minnie's room to finish her packing for her and to dress her. I put on her petticoats and dress and did her hair, and then Aunt Mary Ann came in and put on her wreath and veil. She did look so nice. I wish you could have seen her. Her dress was beautiful and fitted to perfection. She did not seem at all nervous, but I didn't know what she might become. So I managed to smuggle some brandy upstairs and I gave her half a wine glass full. I know you will approve of that. Then, when no one else was in the room, we took a rough towel and rubbed her cheeks very well till she had a nice colour. And I assure you, the improvement was surprising. Now, you know I am letting you into all the secrets of her toilette. No one else knows anything of our little dodges. Minnie was just ready in nice time, and the carriage took us to church in proper style. But unfortunately, we were there rather too soon, for Mr Edward Cox and Mr Cater, the clergyman of the parish, did not arrive for some five minutes. So there we all of us were, waiting before the altar, and looking rather stiff and foolish. It was trying, to say the least of it. 
At last Mr Cox came, and Mr Cater read the opening address, and then Mr Cox began, and then came the worst part, for his emotion was such that he couldn't speak. He tried twice and failed, and we all thought that he was going to break down altogether. However, he tried again and succeeded, and got through all the rest very bravely. Charlie spoke out like a man, and then Minnie spoke very clearly and very distinctly, and she said obey, so that it was particularly audible. She said I was to take special notice of that and tell you when I wrote. Well, we married them, and then we adjourned to the vestry to sign our names, and put on our favours, and kiss her, and congratulate them, and all that sort of thing. Then we went home, and we were all taken in a large photographic group in the garden. They say it came out very well. After that came that dreary pause, without which I believe people are never married, between coming from church and the wedding breakfast. It is a very wearisome time. People are so tired of each other, and so hungry, that they all of them lose their tempers more or less. However, it only lasted half an hour, and then we went into the wedding breakfast, a very grand set-out, with such a cake. We all ate a great deal and were very merry, especially the bride and bridegroom. Speeches being strictly forbidden, of course. But Will Abney insisted on making one, a very long and rather incoherent preamble, mostly as far as the assembled company could make out, a sort of panegyric on his own wife, concluding with a desire to drink the health of the worthy hostess, Aunt Mary Ann the health of Mr Henry Cox, the bride and the bridegroom, having already been drunk before. Then came the great omission of the day. Nearly everybody's health all round the table was drunk, and if you can believe me, until late in the afternoon, no one ever remembered that amongst it all, the bridesmaids had been completely forgotten. Now I am sure you will be shocked at that, but I think we shall get over it. After breakfast, we went into the drawing room for a few minutes, and then I took Minnie upstairs to dress for her journey. Nice as she had looked in her bridal dress, she was still more charming in her travelling costume. A very pretty dress and jacket, and a lovely light blue bonnet with white roses, and a light pair of gloves. She did look charming. She seemed perfectly happy, and so did Charlie. There were no visible tears at parting, but Aunt Maria and Uncle Edward both retired rather precipitately after wishing her goodbye. Dear Minnie herself was a little bit shaky over Agnes, but she looked the very picture of cheerfulness when she got into the carriage, and they had a perfect volley of old shoes after them, in the windows, on the roof, at their heads, in fact everywhere. In fact, I think I may say that it has been a perfect success and very much more cheerful and jolly than nine weddings out of ten. I only wish you could have seen her as a bride, but as you could not, I send you a little piece of the cake, which has really passed through the ring. Please sleep on it, and if you don't dream of me, I shall be very angry. Goodbye, dear Uncle Christopher. Your affectionate Eve. Notes on this letter. Matilda, Minnie's mother, 
died in 1844, probably in childbirth, so she doesn't live to see her daughter, Minnie, marry Charlie Cox. The writer is Evelyn Atkinson, Minnie's cousin, one of the bridesmaids. Uncle Christopher was Minnie's favourite uncle, and she was his favourite niece. This is the same Christopher who was Matilda's favourite brother. Christopher died two years after this wedding, so I'm assuming he was too unwell to travel from Yorkshire to London for the wedding. Vera is the youngest of Minnie and Charlie's ten children, and in 1909 she discovers this letter when sorting out her mother's papers after Minnie has died. She shares this letter with her siblings in the family budget, which is where I discovered it. If you are interested in family trees, Minnie's grandmother and Charlie's grandfather were siblings. This means Minnie and Charlie were second cousins. Today that may well cause some shock. I think we would consider it a bit incestuous if the grandparent of your spouse was a brother of your grandparent. Minnie's maternal aunt was also married to Charlie's paternal uncle. But there were far fewer people living in the world in the 1800s than there are today. And if you married within your social class, as people generally did, this made the possible pool of available people even smaller. There are so many interesting things in this letter. The ladies all eating breakfast in their bedrooms, as was traditional in wealthy families. Whilst men, unmarried women and children would eat their breakfast downstairs in the breakfast room. Cold turkey being eaten for breakfast. Cereal had, of course, not yet been invented. The rough towel to create the red cheeks. You must remember that only loose women wore makeup in the 1800s. And also the bridesmaid sneaking a glass of brandy upstairs to keep the bride calm. Personally, I love imagining the picture of many old shoes being tied to the carriage as they leave, and Minnie in her bonnet and gloves and going-away outfit. I remember weddings from decades ago where a small slice of wedding cake, which was always a rich fruit cake, would be packaged in a small cardboard box and posted to family and friends who were unable to attend the wedding in person. I don't know if people still do that today. Eve draws a very atmospheric picture of the wedding and we can quite imagine Uncle Christopher, old, frail, maybe disabled, at home in Beverley in Yorkshire, reading this letter all about the wedding of his favourite niece Minnie, daughter of his dearest sister Matilda, whilst eating his slice of wedding cake. In the next episode of 100 Years of Cox, I have picked two more letters to read, which really stand out, again written by two more women from the Machel Cox family. Minnie Cox is now 67 years old. The year is 1907 and it is only a couple of years before she dies. She writes a letter to her ten children and she calls it The Lost Art of Letter Writing, encouraging her ten children to continue writing letters to each other. And then a letter by Vera, the youngest of the ten siblings. 
she and Bernard have been to the stadium in White City to watch the famous 1908 London Olympics marathon race. She writes an account of the thrilling race and its controversial ending, described in exhilarating detail. You have been listening to 100 Years of Cox. If you'd like to write to me, please send me an email, machelcoxletters at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.